Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, ni hao, marhaben, namaste, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories 2021. I'm your host, Betsy Ola. In 2013, I was asked to join the Tennessee delegation of the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. And because I admire and support their work, I was happy to become involved. It occurred to me recently that you, my listeners, should know about USGLC and the vital work they do to promote national security and even U.S. export business development. And there is no one better to explain than our special guest today, Jeremy Talbert, Deputy National Outreach Director for the Eastern Region, and Dr. John Glenn, Policy Director. This episode is sponsored by IBG Global LLC. Hello, my name is Peter Sanders, the IBG Global LLC partner handling the Benelux. And the Benelux is Belgium, the Netherlands, and Luxembourg. IBG Global LLC is composed of a group of 21 partners in key world capitals overseeing 62 staffed offices, providing access to over 200 markets. In business for over 15 years, our associates worldwide can provide market entry assistance to exporters the world over, as well as a range of other services, which include foreign direct investment promotion, operating trade missions, and encouraging joint ventures to just name a few. However, the best way for me to explain IBG Global LLC and what we do is to share a story with you. A story that illustrates something we here in the Netherlands have accomplished recently for a US-based exporter. The company headquartered in Pennsylvania is an important North American player in the field of specialty plate, different types of stainless steel used in different industries. The company was producing some incidental sales in Western Europe, but felt there was far more potential. First push was toward finding an industrial agent with knowledge of the stainless steel market. That wasn't easy, but after we successfully completed the task of finding a competent industrial agent with knowledge of exactly that market, the stainless steel, and active in various international European markets, our client asked us to deliver sales support by assisting the newly signed agent in finding leads. We then applied our, our package service called Leads to Business, based on the effective outreach through LinkedIn. We managed to generate six leads within four months, equaling roughly 200,000 worth of sales, a number that exceeded the total net sales of the previous year. Within the framework of IBG Global LLC, our partners worldwide can provide this type of market entry assistance to any interested U.S. manufacturer, and we welcome your outreach. You can find us at ibgglobal.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Without further ado, it is my honor to introduce Jeremy and John. Welcome both of you to the podcast. Jeremy, if you don't mind, let's uh, start off our discussion with, uh, you're given a brief introduction to the USGLC history and the organization. 
Thanks, Betsy. Uh, it's an honor to join you. I uh, really appreciate your partnership uh, over the years. It's, um, it's nice to be here. I just wanted to provide a quick history and overview of the organization we represent, the U.S. Global Leadership Coalition. So about 25 years ago, USGLC was formed. At that time in the 90s when the world was turning inward, the Cold War was winding down, there was a sentiment that we didn't need the tools of civilian engagement. There were large proposals to cut the State Department, USAID, the Peace Corps, Members of Congress would go on the House floor and throw down their passports and proudly declare that, uh, that they did not need them, that uh, we don't need to be engaged on the world stage. So that's when USGLC was launched. We galvanized voices in support of development and diplomacy. Many, under, many Americans understood and understand that it's important that America lead on the world stage. Americans understand that the range of tools is important, including citizen diplomacy. It matters to our national security, our, our economics, and our American values, of course. Over the last 25 years, we've built a movement. We're a big tent organization. The Washington Post called us the Strange Bedfellow Coalition because we bring together such a unique and diverse group of people and voices. At the national level, we're over 500 businesses and nonprofit organizations. We have a bipartisan national advisory committee that's led by General Colin Powell, a national security advisory committee of a little more than 200 retired three and four star admirals and generals who are critical to our work, more than 30,000 veterans across the country, and state advisory committees of leaders from business, faith, academia, et cetera. Um, Jeremy, if I could just ask one question, yeah. aren't almost all of the past um, secretaries of state members? Yes, we have uh, almost all former living uh, secretaries of state involved with the coalition. Yeah. And over the years, we've expanded into all 50 states. We like to say that we look like America. We're business leaders and farmers and veterans and pastors and university presidents and state and local elected officials. And uh, as you know, Betsy, one of the things that we do is we build bipartisan support in Congress through in-district meetings with members, through congressional candidate meetings, through town halls, statewide events, op-eds, etc. We really energize Americans to speak out and advocate the small but mighty portion of the federal budget that is the international affairs budget, just around 1% of the federal budget. It's a piece of the pie, uh, but a really critical and important piece of the federal budget. And you know the results, I would say, speak for themselves. Over the years, there have been unprecedented bipartisan legislation in our space passed, whether it's XM Bank reauthorization, women and girls legislation, um, education legislation, emergency supplemental funding for a comprehensive whole of government response to COVID more recently. And over the last year and a half, Congress has appropriated billions of dollars in emergency COVID-19 funding for State Department aid, including domestic, or excuse me, diplomatic programs, uh, global health, international disaster assistance, refugee assistance, et cetera. And not only that, Congress has also provided additional emergency resources, predominantly to Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, to support that global vaccine distribution around the world, which is so, so important. Mm -hmm. Uh, work with uh, members of Congress, as you know, Betsy, and congressional candidates on these issues, and we've seen significant support over the years. And e even in really challenging environments, we've stopped 
uh, $54 billion of cuts, we've lifted up signature policy proposals like the WGDP, which is the Women's Global Development and Prosperity Initiative. Um, it's, that's a really unique uh, program and we don't, uh, I won't get into all the details here, but it's the first ever whole of government effort to advance global women's economic empowerment. And the goal is I believe 50 million women in the developing world through 2025. Um, really neat program there. Um, yeah, very important. Yeah. Um, you know, Betsy, it's been a really challenging past year and a half or so for so many people and organizations. But despite the COVID pandemic, it's really important that our work goes on. Spending is half of what we spent 40 years ago as a percentage of GDP on international affairs programs. So I want to talk for just a second. Um, sort of where we are, what we've learned in recent years, if I may. Well, on one hand, we're, uh, we're more connected uh, now more than ever. No disrespect with the old adage, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, doesn't apply to infectious diseases. No. What happens in a faraway small village can spread throughout the world in about 36 hours. But we've also seen an inward turn in recent years, that nationalist vibe in many countries and unlike 25 years ago, the U.S. inward turn is not super unique because um, we've seen this in many countries around the globe more recently. We know that this has consequences. And Betsy, while USGLC advocates for strong American leadership on the world stage and for the international affairs budget, of course, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has really been top of mind for all of us. And I want to touch on that for just a few minutes. Please. Our perspective uh, COVID has really exposed the reality of how high the stakes are. We see the COVID-related issues domestically here, but there's a deep concern around the world as well. The Gates Foundation said that the pandemic has wiped out 25 years of vaccine progress in just 25 weeks last year alone. According to the UN, there's a dramatic worsening of world hunger in 2020, much of it related to the fallout of COVID. And while the pandemic's impact has yet to be fully mapped, a multi-agency report estimated that almost a billion people were undernourished last year. The, the list uh, goes on, sadly. Um, I, I wanna talk about um, some of USCLC's efforts over the last year plus um, and advocating for that global response to COVID-19. and how, how can a, a global pandemic not have a, a global uh, response, you may ask? You know, Ebola was global and that was limited to a few countries. It's not just the right thing to do to respond internationally, but it's in our own self-interest. We know that disease knows no borders, and if we want to keep Americans safe in the long run, we must combat this internationally. Of course, there are challenges. Um, it's really tough to make the global local case, especially when there are many concerns for the health and safety of our families and our children here at home. We're in the midst of our own domestic health and economic crisis. We're still in a really harsh political environment as well. So I think that really requires us upping our game. And Betsy, you, you know the reality. It's, uh, it's really hard to capture attention um, in addition to the health and economic crisis. And, the explosive events uh, recently from the murder of George Floyd to the 2020 election to the events of January 6th. This is not a normal time to transform the political conversation. And we, of course, 
Um, you know, know that the global stage is really chaotic and complex. So as John McCain would say, it, it's on fire with the Afghan withdrawal situation, the rise of China and their influence around the world, climate issues and extreme weather events increasing. The list goes on. I know John will talk about that um, yeah. later in the podcast as well. And third and finally, there are questions about America's role in the world. You know, the world's asking, is America there? Um, and let's face it, when America is not at the table, others fill that seat. Americans want our nation to partner with others to advance security, health, and stability in the world. So real quickly, uh, what are we as an organization going to do about it? In the short term, we're advocating um, a global pandemic requires a global response and global resources, and we will advocate for that to make sure adequate resources are there. We're engaging current and future policymakers who are holding town hall events, in-district meetings, candidate meetings, et cetera. We've met with a little more than 300 candidates in the last election cycle. In the long term, we uh, really need to reinvigorate a new era of U.S. global engagement. Uh, Richard Haas, the president of the Council of Foreign Relations, wrote in Foreign Affairs several months back that we really took for granted uh, that everyone gained from liberal international war. I thought that was um, uh, that was important to note in a, a good read as well. Um, we think it's really uh, the time to reinvest in that storytelling. Uh, that's something this podcast does a really good job of. Uh, Thank you. I couldn't be more clear that this is really the ultimate kitchen table issue these days. We've got to you know, return to conversation with our fellow Americans. We need to listen and not just talk. And uh, we're going to them. And we need to go to them, not just the big cities in America, but the rural areas of this country as well. And really engage Americans in a conversation of why diplomacy, humanitarian assistance, American aid matters to security, stability, our economics, and of course, our health. So we're reinvesting as a coalition in a renewed dialogue. We're partnering with mayors. We're re-energizing our digital platforms. We're hosting roundtable events. We recently launched a campaign titled Foreign Aid, What's It Work? that will really help us tell the story in the months and, and years to come. So I think that there's a lot uh, that also gives us hope. And I want to um, end my comments on, on a more positive note, um, the next generation of leaders uh, is something I think that gives me a lot of hope. USGLC has a new program. It's called the Next Gen Program that's engaging a group of diverse, bipartisan young professionals in three areas, leadership, skills training, and mentorship um, in support of their, their own engagement on global development and diplomacy in their local communities and helping make that connection locally. Um, so I'm really hopeful when I hear about, um, you know, so many amazing young leaders across the country and the seriousness of so many people like you, Betsy, and many of the people in the podcast that are really making a concerted effort to elevate and promote the importance and benefits, the many benefits of America's global engagement. So that's, uh, that's what gives me hope. Betsy, at the end of the podcast, I'd love to give listeners um, just a little bit about how they can get involved with the USGLC in their own communities, if that's okay. But Absolutely. We definitely thank will. Thanks again for having us. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. And uh, first of all, I'm, I love the idea of the Next Gen program. I, thank you for throwing me in there with the Next Gen. Uh, I think I'm the old gen, but 
Anyway, um, no, that's a, what a great idea, and that's really important. And I'll just say from my experience, uh, just doing my small part as part of the state delegation here, the meetings that we have face-to-face -face with uh, congressional leaders, and, you know, before my first meeting, I thought this, you know, is this really going to make a difference? But they really do listen. They know you're also voters, I guess, and business leaders in the community, and they really do listen. So I really do think it has an impact. Um, and uh, so, you know, I'm happy to be able to do that. But um, so anyway, thank you, Jeremy. That was really uh, a really good explanation. And um, now, John, I want to turn to you, if you don't mind. And first of all, can you describe you know, as policy director, your chief responsibilities? Of course, Betsy, it's so great to be here, especially with my colleague, Jeremy, whom I always like working with. So at USGLC, part of my job uh, is to engage with the folks who lead the White House and what we call the executive branch, folks at the State Department, the US Agency for International Development, all the departments and agencies, including the Peace Corps and others that are funded by their national affairs budget. Um, we've got our piece of our work that's really about that budget piece, which happens once a year. Yeah. But then a sort of I'd highlight part of my work as policy director is to really talk about how those resources are used and how they advance America's interests over around the world. And in particular, to sort of educate and press, regardless of who the White House is occupied by, regardless of who the Congress is controlled by, to ensure that these resources are spent effectively and accountably. And I think actually there's a great story to tell. Absolutely. And we're going to get into some <clears throat> specific stories in a minute, but I just want to cover some of the, the important areas that, that you cover. So if we can, let's talk for just a minute about development and, diplom and the diplomacy work of Great. the LC and how it helps stabilize countries and regions. Can you kind of explain that? I can. I can. So I'm going to focus a little bit on the economic side, but I'll sort of bracket that by saying, you know, you'll see we always say that investments in diplomacy and development, they make the world safer. Kind of a national security argument, understanding that the military alone is not actually the um, able to deal with a lot of these transnational threats we face today, which don't have military solutions alone. It's about how we work together with all the tools of national power. There's another piece about how, why we talk about this that's really about our humanitarian values is who we are as Americans. You know, that, that image that we hold of ourselves of being that shining city on a hill and Americans sort of immediate support after natural disasters and humanitarian issues to be there for those in need and less fortunate than we are. But given your audience, let me sort of just talk a little about the economic piece and sort of explain how diplomacy and development do that. I mean, I feel a little funny. I mean, talking to you, I mean, based in Tennessee, the sense of, you know, we know that you export a wide range of goods. You know, it's over $28 million worth of goods, according to the research we've gotten. It supports more than over 800,000 jobs in the States. And, you know, 83, over 83% of those are actually small and medium-sized businesses. What I'd say is, you know, in this moment we're at, we're all sort of somewhat reeling from the pandemic, which has had tremendous economic impacts upon the global economy and, you know, the and the local economy in a lot of ways. I mean, do you know that the, uh, the World Bank estimated that the failure to actually um, 
vaccinating the world could cost the world economy up to $9 trillion, with the costs borne equally by wealthy and by poorer countries. And this is more devastation than the 2008 financial crisis. But that's sort of what makes us say, we got to go back to basics and explain how this works and why this matters again, because we have to be able to make the case compellingly. If I can, I'd do it in sort of a quick sort of three-step kind of piece. I'd say, so if you think about it, we know we live in a global economy. We know we live in an interconnected economy, and I hear that everywhere I go when I talk around the country or I talk to other businesses. They know that's where growth opportunities are, and they want to know how they can be part of it. But American businesses thrive in overseas markets when the conditions for private investment flourish. And this means free and fair market policies, transparent financial infrastructures, and good governance. And unfortunately, these conditions are limited in too many countries. You know, many of our closest trading partners, I wouldn't say that about that, but in many places, these there are challenges and these reforms are sometimes limited by a range of barriers, including it could be a weak rule of law, could be inadequate infrastructure, getting goods to market, inadequate health and education systems that support an effective workforce. And in some areas, of course, it's instability, conflict and those sorts of issues. And so fundamentally, what investments in diplomacy and development do is they help build and open new markets for American businesses. They tackle those barriers to investment. They promote rule of law. They help build infrastructure and catalyze investments in it. They support um, health programs and education systems that do build that workforce. Now, these obstacles, what we say is, is you know, often you know, why not let the market do it? But when I talk to businesses, these are the kinds of investments of what's called the enabling environment by some that business isn't gonna be able to do alone. It is in fact what I would call strategic investments that aren't gonna take the place of the private sector. When they succeed, what they do well is they catalyze private sector investment. And that's when, when you get the win-win that you have of sort of catalyzing this and it becomes economic growth that benefits people in the developing world, in those countries, when they have jobs and opportunity, but also creates opportunity for trade, for exports, for American businesses and American workers. And national security. I mean, there is a national security component of that in addition to the economic component. Wouldn't you agree? I absolutely would. I absolutely would. I would say that, you know, when countries become unstable, um, it tends to, in many ways, it can lead to so many things that can sort of threaten our national security interests. These can be refugee flows. These can be sort of instability with some of our allies, as some of our the neighboring countries. And in fact, the group of retired generals and admirals that um, Jeremy mentioned are actually some of our most powerful voices of saying, we need to be supporting diplomacy and development because that's what's going to create the kind of protect our security as well. Right, right. Well, and it, and and I don't know if we'll have time to talk about what you know about Afghanistan in this situation in in this conversation today, but it seems that one of the things the president was saying when we were to get it when we were getting out of Afghanistan was to be able to focus on some other areas that are extremely uh, delicate and important, such as China. And I don't know if I read that correctly, but can you talk a little bit about China's, you know, growing global influence and what's at stake? I can, I can. And I'm really glad to have a chance to do so, actually, because, um, I mean, Afghanistan is such a a current situation in which there are so many areas. I think most Americans had mixed feelings sort of seeing as they watched what happened there. 
But I think also many Americans, at least, would agree that the threat that we faced from international terrorism from Al-Qaeda when it was housed in, under the Taliban regime back in 2001 is not the situation we're in right now. And it does not mean that threat is going away. But right. when we look at the threats today, we look at the threats of the growing um, global influence of countries like China. Many of these are you know, growing authoritarian regimes. These are regimes where, um, where they do not share our values. And I would say even prior to the economic downturn from COVID, there was widespread agreement on the challenge of growing global economic competition from countries like China. You know, we talk as well every now and about the regional security challenges and there are issues about the South China Seas that are very important, issues around Taiwan that are very important. But when you look at it globally, it's often actually an economic interest uh, and competition that we're talking about here. I mean, China launched something they called its global Belt and Road Initiative in 2013, which spans the world seeking to sort of, you know, help in some ways do a really good thing if it would be that which is to sort of to build infrastructure that would allow more trade and commerce but at the same time it's happening in a way that doesn't always actually reinforce long-term growth right. and um these kinds of issues are the things that really tend to uh, raise questions for a lot of folks and there are some real issues i will say there's a wide range of views about china you know for some this is an existential threat to our very fundamental nature of our democracy for others they think we could deal with this in a more kind of traditional dip diplomatic manner where they tend to say you know compete where we must and cooperate where we can but i would say briefly that between those there's actually a lot of agreement that we need to be partnering with our allies in the so-called Indo-Pacific region now to set standards for trade and economic cooperation, to provide more, more development infrastructure options so that China isn't only setting the table, and frankly, to increase economic connectivity. Um, and there's a lot of interesting talk now about digital trade and work that this can be done and how we sort of manage um, our own presence in the, uh, in the, around the world where, I mean, the truth be told is before the pandemic, and I think it's still true, it was something like 10 out of the 12 fastest growing economies. We're in the developing world, actually, many of them even in sub-Saharan Africa. So I think there's a real issue. I would certainly emphasize that my concern personally, and I think of many, is not with China as a country, it's really with the Chinese regime really, that we have there. And so this is just completely separate issue. This is about the challenge of economic competition around the world. Right. Right. Well, you know, I don't know if you can make this assessment, but, you know, there's been over last year, there were the last few years, there's been so much concern about Russian influence, but mm. it seems like China has a stronger economy that we should be more concerned about. I don't know. Do you, do you have a, an opinion about that? So here's the way I'd put it is this, that they're different challenges. I think the challenge from Russia is not an economic one. Now, that's for the United States. If you're Europe, Russia is an energy security issue because right. there are real issues about the sort of cheap Russian gas coming in and questions about using um, energy and gas as a political weapon right. in that region, especially right. in Eastern Europe and parts of the former Soviet Union. That's not the threat that we, the United States, really face, as it were, from Russia. From there, it's really a different challenge that we've been struggling with that has to do with issues of very clear reports of um, meddling in our elections, 
yeah. issues of disinformation and misinformation that have been undertaken that have sought to undermine trust in our institutions and in our very elections. Right. Challenge from China, again, I, I, I think there are, as I said, real regional security issues, but the global one's an economic one, actually. And, you know, one of the interesting things when one thinks about it is sort of about Chinese economic involvement in Africa. And there is a real consensus out there, I tell you, from the right and the left, that yeah. Africa is a key economic opportunity for the United States, that we need to be accelerating our trade and private sector investment there, you know, as other countries grow. And so, and part of it is against that backdrop of that competition. Because, you know, as frankly, as Jeremy said earlier so nicely, if we don't show up, others will. Right, right, exactly. No, I, I couldn't agree more. So another issue that I know you're familiar with is how climate change disproportionately mm. impacts the developing world. And I'd love it if we could have a little conversation about that. I personally think this is extremely important. Yeah, so, you know, there's, again, I would want to emphasize that, you know, I'm clear-eyed about, um, certainly I would, you know, look at the sort of data where we've seen, and almost everybody agrees, temperatures are rising. I'm also clear-eyed that, frankly, there isn't agreement at home about how to deal with US greenhouse gas emissions. We got a big debate. We're still not actually there yet. Right. But there is no disagreement when you look around the world about where the effects of climate change hit the hardest. And it's the poorest and most vulnerable countries. And there's your national security connection that you mentioned exactly. earlier. These countries are the ones hit hardest by that. And that's what leads to greater instability and in so many ways that can so quickly affect our interests, whether it's um, spikes in food, hunger and food security that lead to, um, in some cases, to riots and instability of people looking for food or clean water, or whether it's, you know, um, the movement of people. You know, we now or we have been for the past couple of years, even as harder as, as it is to admit, we have the most number of people in the, around the world displaced from their homes since World War II. That's when, you know, countries' borders were moving and people were just being moved all around the world there. And COVID has made it even harder. Yeah. According to the World Red Cross, the Red Cross, they estimate that 50 million people around the world have been jointly affected by COVID and climate. You know, um, a lot of ways the humanitarian crises caused by climate change are harder to respond to because of COVID because you come in and all of a sudden you've got questions about how you're managing the health of both those workers who come, the aid workers to help, but also to protect the people and so many concerns about the kind of refugee camps where you don't have the conditions for social distancing, and these kinds of things. Right. And so these, you know, economic costs of COVID are actually also affecting tremendously our projections for our ability to meet existing climate financing goals. What yeah. will we need to do to deal with the adaptation side of this? And it's making things making things very hard. It makes global climate diplomacy hard. I mean, there's a lot of movement right now in come November, the so-called climate, the UN Climate Change Conference, which is often known as COP26, uh -huh. um, has been postponed for a year because they couldn't meet in person because of COVID. And this is a moment when we're hoping that there this will be a moment for countries to at least set tough targets that they hope to meet. Um, former Secretary of State John Kerry's flying around the world trying to do, trying to see what he can do. He was in India last week. He was yeah. in China the week before. So in so many ways, it affects all of these things we're talking about here. Well, just to ask you a question, are you saying that they postponed, I mean, was it postponed from last year or are they postponing it again? I mean, no, no, no. I'm sorry. I meant to say from last year because of oh, the pandemic. Okay. 
Oh, okay. So that will they be meeting this year in November? Yes, that's the plan in November. Oh, good, good. In uh, the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Good. That's well. <laughs> we have so much work to do on climate change, but but it absolutely is important that an organization that's not political, like like USGLC, is is talking about these issues and find you know helping to find solutions that are not political. It's just, you know, based on what's good for our national security and our economy. You know, we're a coalition, as Jeremy said, of over 500 businesses and NGOs. And what I like to say is, is that means there's a lot of different views. I think what brings us together and keeps us together across that bipartisanship is a belief that we have to stay engaged in the world and that diplomacy and development are essential tools that have been under-resourced. But I'm comfortable with the idea that there are a lot of different views about how we deal with many world challenges out there. But also that we should just, as I like to say, we should be facing in the same direction while we're having that conversation. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it's, and it's wonderful what y'all are doing to, to uh, make a difference in, that, in, in those regards. Thank so, you, that's very kind. <laughs> um, well, so now we get into the storytelling part of mm. Uh, our podcast. And what I would ask is that if, if you can just share a few of your stories that help illustrate, you know, your USGLC's important influence. Anyone you want to tell them would be great. Yeah, yeah. So I was thinking about that in, in preparation for this. Um, and I guess here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to tell you one story that's kind of a big story, macro story, and one story that's about a person I met. Cool. As a way to tell it that way. Um, The big story I want to tell you is one that is sort of one of the most important cases that I think we need to make and remind ourselves. It's one of the really huge success stories after World War II, and that's actually South Korea. So here we are just this week. We see North Korea is once again firing missiles into uh, into the sea near it, raising questions about this. And I just keep thinking back to that work that the United States has done investing in trade, economic development, and humanitarian assistance initially with South Korea. So after World War II, after the Korean War, South Korea has an economy the same size as Ghana. Fast forward to recent years, South Korea is now America's sixth largest trading partner. Exports to South Korea have tripled since 1990 to over $43 billion. And you know what? That's more in one year than all the development assistance the U.S. provided since the war. Talk about a return on investment. And South Korea, when you look around, you just around the world, you know, at this point, USAID closed its office in 1980. South Korea is now an aid donor and a partner with other countries. And South Korea is just one example of this. And I just keep thinking, thank goodness, we need more South Koreas than North Koreas out there. And it's one example. It's 11 of the top 15 U.S. export markets are actually great, former recipients of U.S. foreign assistance. Great example. Thank you. That's great. So South Korea to me is a really important one, I think, there. But it's, it is sort of a macro one. And so let me tell you a story about when I went to um, Nairobi, Kenya, a couple of years ago. Um, I was taken there along with some USGLC folks and a couple members of Congress and some sort of foreign policy experts to one of the largest 
they, they prefer often to be called sort of improvised communities. This is, um, you know, it's a place called Kibera, where over a million people live in some really, really rough settings. And this is, you walk around and it's tin roofs and there's no paved floors and people are just doing stuff out there. And it's really eye-opening for most Americans, I think, to sort of see and understand that. But we went there to see what we could see about the about the role of U.S. programs to trying to help in those circumstances. Now, one of the things that you learn quickly when you get there, if you're paying attention and if you've got the right guide, is that from the outside, you can think like, what's happening? It all just looks kind of chaotic. But there's absolutely an economy to those places, actually. There's a way people are managing who lives where, who moves in, who moves up. And one of the pieces that I remember most because there isn't running water in most of these places. So we got a chance to talk to this young African man who was uh, through the, a small grant from USAID leading a series of clean water stations all through Kibera, this sort of really rough uh, setting this way. And as he said, you know, the people don't have, they don't have bathrooms, they don't have washing machines, and they don't have sinks, of course, to have taps. And he said, you know, it's not free. We don't provide it free of charge, actually. But if you come here, you can see, you can fill your tap, you can take shower, you can use the bathrooms around over they have over here, and it's not expensive. And as we were standing outside doing this, I'll tell you, of course, people are gathering around with their jugs and we sort of move out of the way to make sure because it becomes such a need. And here was the interesting part to it as we listened to him talk about that. First of all, it seemed very entrepreneurial, but secondly, you know, one of the people we were with said, tell me, are you making a profit? And he said, actually, I am, but enough to what I've done now is I've built three other stations throughout Kibera. And somebody said, you started a franchise. And it's these kind of small investments, often in young people who have a talent, a little bit of skills training, a little bit of advice there. What he was doing was addressing a very human need in yeah. some real extreme poverty. But what it, because it was done through this model, I mean, as an American, of course, I really respond to these kinds of things. He was doing so in a way that was creating an economy an economy for him for himself and for the people who worked for him, but an economy as well that had helped benefit the health and the cleanliness and the survival of the people who lived there. And it was these kind of small targeted investments that frankly happen all around the developing world. We have decades of examples like those where you see how a little bit of American resources, a little bit of American know-how can be incredibly powerful. And I just remember that experience, standing outside that water station as he explained how this economy worked, even in a setting where a million people are living in some of the worst conditions I'd ever seen, in a way that benefits them, in yeah. a way that's economically sustainable. That is that is a lovely story. And like you said, there's so many more. Um, I wonder if you could say that if you add up all of this aid work that we do, I don't know if you can say this or not, but could it in some ways protect or help defend really low poverty areas against terrorist activities or terrorists coming into the area and, you know. So Betsy, yeah. what I'd say is, you know, it turns out, I think the best way to understand that is that it's a complex issue. And there's, there's one sort of simple thing and, um, you know, the, the simple case is that the 9-11 hijackers weren't poor. They were actually college-educated folks. Right. Poverty does not cause terrorism. Okay. It's much more complex than that. It has to do with an ideology and has to do with sort of circumstances. 
But when you look at circumstances in countries where you're wondering what are the fertile grounds for recruitment and radicalization, so often in an era where we've seen this unbelievable youth boom all around the world, it's people without economic opportunity at home. It's people who can't get jobs. It's people who aren't integrated into their communities that you just see the pattern that yeah. sort of terrorist recruiters look for that as fertile ground. Right. It's not a straight line. Um, but at the same time, I think that what we feel is it's kind of one of the ways that it addresses some of the drivers of radicalization. You know, um, when I you look back to understanding the Arab Spring years ago, which has been such a tragedy in so many ways, yeah. the initial thought was, oh, people were poor. That's why they rose up. It turned out people were responding to injustice. People were responding to arbitrary police violence and get in Tunisia against, you know, a fruit seller, you know, or this sort of issue. People were just responding to this, but it's these conditions at the same time that really interact and in understanding what makes it more likely that people are more vulnerable to appeals to participate in radical extremism. And I think economic opportunity is one of those pieces. Yeah, I, I appreciate your answering my question because it, it, I think other people wonder as well but yeah so oh, such a good such a good conversation so can y'all uh jeremy um perhaps you can let people know how they can get involved in the usglc absolutely and i know you've got uh, uh, thousands of listeners from across the country and we really love to have um, anyone who is interested in um, our issue set and our coalition join us we'd love to have your voice as we make the case uh, to policymakers and the American public and the importance of these issues. Um, I would encourage everyone to subscribe to receive our alerts and emails. Uh, okay. Listeners can do that at www.usglc.org. Um, follow us on social media. Uh, USGLC is our handle across okay. all platforms. Um, and folks are also welcome to email me directly at J Tolbert, that's T-O-L-B-E-R-T, -E at usglc.org. Again, love to, to bring more folks into the fold um, and advocate and talk about these programs within their local communities. So thanks for the opportunity for the plug there, Betsy. Absolutely, and let's, let's post all that information on the episode page to make it easy for everybody, and we will do that, so. Thank you. Uh, no, thank you. What an amazing discussion today. I'm so grateful to you, John and Jeremy, for being here. And um, to our listeners, we'd love to get a conversation going about this episode, as well as general discussions about exporting. Please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com. You can ask questions or post comments on the episode page. We're also on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Uh, we're creating a community of exporters. So, you know, hope you'll get involved. But um, so, you know, thanks again, John and Jeremy. It was great talking to you. Yeah, thank you for having us. It's really extraordinary a chance to be here to talk about these issues. Much appreciated. It's my pleasure. And thanks to all our listeners. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. 
We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 